Good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor of our church, and <clears throat> I want to invite you to grab your bulletin. The verses we're looking at are in there. There's a place to take notes. Um, we're in a series called Real, <clears throat> and we're seeing how the Bible talks in ways that actually surprise us, <clears throat> excuse me, with how honest it gets about human experience and how difficult things can be for us. Last week, we started the series, and we looked at the context of the passage in Romans 7 that we're going to dive into today. Um, last week, we saw that the author of this whole letter, Paul, who wrote this that is going to startle you if you haven't read this passage before, um, that Paul could be this real because he was confident in God's love. Paul knew who he was. He knew how much God loved him, how much God knew, and because of his confidence in God's love, he was able to be real and honest about who he was, and he could be honest about his weaknesses. And it's, it's a blessing for us right now, today, that God gave the church leaders who aren't perfect. Um, if the leaders are broken, it makes room for people who also are broken. Um, and it's amazing that God inspired people, inspired Paul to be this real in the Bible so that you can know today, if you're not okay, you're not alone. And so we're going to look specifically at the text of Romans 7. But before we do, I want to introduce you to the roommate from hell. Okay, the roommate from hell. I want to introduce you to Jameson Bachman. Jameson was a serial squatter who used his knowledge of tenant laws to terrorize a dozen different homeowners and roommates ultimately sending them into court and often kicking them out of their own home. Okay, I read this article about him. Jameson would start by stealing common area furniture and light bulbs and bringing them into his own room. But then soon his behavior would escalate. He would clog toilets with his cat litter. Uh, and then he'd refuse to pay rent because the plumbing was off. Um, he would then like stop paying rent because of something minor like a messy living room or a cigarette butt in the toilet. He'd then threaten legal action and even sometimes get violent. His goal was to get his roommates to sue him. In 2013, while he was squatting in one place, he told a reporter, I'm happy to have her, his roommate, file an eviction notice. She files the filing fee and then I piggyback on the filing fee and hit her with a counterclaim. That's just tactics. No matter what his roommates did, they couldn't get him to leave. And when one roommate burst into tears, Bachman pretended to comfort her saying this. He said, you've got your whole life in front of you. You're pretty and you're talented and you've got this house. Well, you don't have this house anymore. This house is now my house. And his objective wasn't material gain but the sadistic pleasure of watching them squirm as he displaced them. He seemed to relish the anguish of those who had taken him in without realizing that they would soon be pulled into a terrifying battle for their home and their sanity. The roommate from hell. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 tells us that we have a roommate just like this. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not your parents. Um, Paul calls this roommate 
who won't leave sin. And in this part of the Bible, Paul says that his struggles in his life are in part due to the presence of this unwanted roommate who won't leave. And so I want to read this text together. Again, it's in your bulletin. It'll be on the screens. And I bolded and underlined the parts where Paul specifically deals with sin, this unwanted roommate. So let's read Romans 7, verses 8 through 25. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law then. When I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Man, this is Paul getting real. Do you see what he says sin does in this passage, in this section of the letter? Um, sin in this passage is a person, not something you do. In this section of Romans, sin is the awful roommate that will not leave. Just going back over, verse 8 says, Sin produced in me all manner of coveting. Verse 9, When the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. 
See, it's a person. Verse, th- verse 11, sin seized opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and killed me. So sin is active. It's a person. It's personified in this section of this letter. And verse 13 says, through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. And what, what, what this means is that sin is so evil that it even took God's covenant and used God's covenant for evil. That God, like God's commandments, all the commandments that God gives, they're designed to help us flourish, right? The command that was supposed to produce life, it was supposed to make you feel like you're gonna live this way forever, like God gives us commands not so that we would be discouraged, but so that we'd be encouraged. God gives us his law. He made a covenant with Israel. He makes a covenant with us. And in that covenant, he provides us with commands, things to do, things not to do. And it's, it's not so that we would feel discouraged. It's so that we would know how to live in a relationship with him. It's so that we would live and thrive with the presence of God, so that we would be able to express to God how much we love him. It's so that we could experience the life that God designed all of us to live. That's what the commandments are for. That's what the covenant is for. God reaches out to us in love and in grace, and these commandments are expressions of that love and grace. And sin is so evil that it could even take those commandments and make us worse. So even the gifts of God come to us and sin uses them to make us worse. How does it do that? Well, I mean, just there's some ways that might ring true just right off. You think about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in the church, right? Typically are people who either think they're better than everyone else. Like, and how much is that the opposite of God's design? Like God's grace is not designed to make you think you're better than anyone else right? God's grace is the opposite. God's grace is that you would get to a place where you'd say, I am poor in spirit. I've got nothing going for me, but God loved me and saved me and rescued me. So I'm no better than anyone else. And yet hypocrisy bleeds its way into the church, right? It infects the church and we begin to treat people on the outside like they're not as good as we are. Like somehow we earn God's grace or somehow because we're working hard at trying to follow Jesus that we're better than people that aren't doing that. That's backwards, but that's what sin does. The idea that we, um, just judgmentalism, right? Or a lack of compassion on other people who struggle, right? Think about how much grace you give yourself. Think about how much you understand just how hard it is to be you, right? Think about how you put in your own, like when you think about the things that you say and somebody gets offended and you think, oh, well, you didn't understand what I meant, Right? And you'll go to great lengths to explain what you meant. You'll go to great lengths to keep from feeling guilty about what you said and blame the other person for how it came across to them. I'm sorry that you were hurt. Right? Um, instead of looking at what we did and realizing like, oh, I did something that hurt someone else. Right? And so we give ourselves all kinds of grace, all kinds of understanding, all kinds of, like we go to great lengths to justify ourselves to see that we're not as bad as it seemed like we might have been. But we don't offer that to other people. 
Like we don't give that kind of patience or understanding to others. And then there's just the flat out. Sometimes we weren't even thinking about doing the wrong thing until we learned what God wants, right? That's one of the examples Paul brings up. Like, I didn't even know covetousness. He says this actually in verse seven. Uh, I didn't even know what covetous was until the law said don't covet. But once that happened, all kinds of covetousness came out of me. And so in all these ways, like that sin is so bad, it is so evil, it is sinful beyond measure. That's what the end of verse 13 means. And so, and I want you to see that this roommate that we have, this this person that lives with us, um, he produces death. He produces death. Uh, Look at verse 13 in your bulletin. It says, it was sin. The middle of verse 13, it was sin producing death in me. And so sin is not just law-breaking. It's not just that you broke some arbitrary law that God set up as a test to see if you'd follow him or do, do things your own way. No, no, no. All of God's laws are designed to give life. All of God's laws are designed to produce love. All of God's laws are designed to make this world a wonderful place to live in, where we have a perfect relationship with him, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with ourselves, right? That's what God's laws are for. And when we break those laws, we bring death into the world. We bring death into our souls. We bring death into our relationships. And so sin is actually producing death in us. It's not just broken laws. And so I just want to ask, do you identify with this? If you're a Christian, do you see that this is part of who you are? If you're not a Christian, do you see that this is a description of your experience? I mean, sometimes... Wouldn't you agree? Sometimes I am minding my own business and I will have a thought that comes out of seemingly nowhere. And it's a horrific thought. It's, and it's, I mean, it's sometimes not even a temptation to go do something, but it's a temptation to think about something, right? Think about something so heinous, I would never do this, right? Where is this coming from? Paul is telling us this is sin's presence in us. And the question is, how did it get this bad? Like, how did we come to this? Where did this come from? And Paul actually tells there's a story of sin. Uh, Again, sin is personified. There's a story about sin as a person in Romans chapter 5 through 8. In these four chapters, we see sin's story. I just want to share with you some of the I don't know if you want to call them highlights. They're, they're kind of lowlights. But um, this is sin's story as told in Romans 5 through 8. In chapter 5, verse 12, it says that sin entered the world. So there was a point in time when sin entered into the world. And sin brought death with it. And it says there, because all sinned. And so sin doesn't just enter in, but sin brings, a, it brings death with him. Now, sin never tells you this. Sin promises the world. Sin promises pleasure. It promises ease. It promises luxury. Sin promises you're going to get away with it. Sin promises it's not a big deal. But what sin brings with it is death. Death comes in with sin. And so verse 14 of chapter 5 says that death reigned as sin's culture. Sin has 
a stench, a feel, a vibe to it that's, that's, that's negative, it's awful, it's death. And it's so bad. Verse 21 of chapter 5 says that sin reigned in death. So sin isn't just a person, but sin is a ruler. Sin has power. <clears throat> power to control. Power to, to lead. Power to guide. Power to tempt. <clears throat> and sin reigns in death. And then in chapter 6, verse 16, it says that when we obey sin, we become its slaves. So we actually give sin power over us when we give into it, when we obey sin. And then chapter 6, verse 20 says that sin's wages and the outcomes of sin, again, are death. And so sin, this person, this roommate that won't leave, uh, it wants to rule you. It wants to control you. It wants to destroy you. And so what Romans 7 is teaching us is that even when Jesus saves us, even when Jesus rescues us from the mess that all of us have made, that religion didn't make any better, even in the redemption that Jesus brings and the salvation that Jesus brings, he brings us out of this mess, but while we are on our way out, a roommate comes with us. Sin comes with us as the roommate that we don't want and the roommate that won't leave. And so we all have this roommate. And we obey it. We have a relationship with it. It's bad enough if it were to live in our home, but it doesn't. It lives in our hearts. It's even worse because it's inside of us. That's what the text says, that the sin lives in us. And so in Romans 7, Paul is getting real and he's blazing a trail for us so that we can walk after him and be this real about ourselves with ourselves, being real with God and, you know, where it's appropriate with others. Now, maybe some of you might know some Christians, Christians and non-Christians, you might know people that are Christians, and as far as you can tell, like their whole life is perfect, right? Do you know people like this? Like nothing seems to go wrong, everything seems to be going right, they don't seem to struggle, they're always happy, right? Every time you see them, everything's great. <clears throat> well, that was not Paul's experience, And Paul was one of the most important leaders in the church, in the history of the church. In the last 2,000 years, Paul wrote half of the New Testament. So half of the New Testament that we have was written because of the guy who wrote Romans chapter 7. Okay, so the guy who got this real, God wanted him to write half of what we have in the New Testament. And so this is Paul's experience. Um, just to make it super clear, this is also my experience. Um, sin lives inside of me. Sin makes me do things that I wish I didn't do. Um, this is true for all of us. Now, in this letter up to this point, we've seen that Paul has real joy in the present. 
He's got real, unshakable hope in the future. But Romans 7 says that that isn't the sum total of Paul's experience. That sin was his roommate and continued to live with him every day. And so there's something else that I want you to notice because there's something really important for us in in how Paul engages with this, what Paul says. Um, He says things about his experience that I want all of us to be able to say. And honestly, there's, there's things that Paul says in this passage that make some people nervous. They make them think, you know what, like, I'm not sure if we're allowed to actually say this. And so I think it's really important to bring this to our attention because wherever God wants us, wherever God wants to lead us, whatever God wants to say to us, we need to follow. And if God says something that might make us uncomfortable, well, we need to wrestle with that, okay? And so there's some things I want you to notice here. I'm just gonna give you some highlights on the slides um, from some of the verses. Verse eight, I'm gonna reread some of these things. Verse eight says, but... Sin produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Verse 11, for sin deceived me and through it killed me. Verse 13, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And then if you didn't hear him that time, in verse 20, he says, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so Paul is honest about this. I've got sin in me, it's in me. But Paul also, do you see, he's differentiating himself from sin? See how he's separating himself from sin? In Romans 6, if you read Romans 6, Paul has this, he he brings up this concept that he calls the old self. And he's explaining more about the old self here in chapter 7. Your old self is who you are when sin is in control. Okay, so here's the question that may be bothering you. Is Paul excusing himself? Have you ever heard someone say, the devil made me do it? Right, it's not my fault. Sure, sure, there were words that came from here. There were actions that came from this, right? Using passive verbs, actions that came from, right? But it wasn't me, right? It wasn't me. No, 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 see, you don't understand. You don't understand. There's this thing that goes on inside of me. Right? There's this part of me that just comes out. It's not me. Right? It's not me. So you can't blame me. Right? Is this... Now, I, I know that mental health issues are significant and contribute to all kinds of crimes, but, you know, when you plead insanity on the, you know, in a court case, they treat you differently. Right? If you can prove that you are insane, things are different. The law treats you differently. And so is Paul pleading here? Insanity? Is he making an excuse for himself? What do you think? I mean, wrestle with this, right? Because he says this over and over and over and over again in this passage, not once. At least five different verses have Paul blaming sin and separating himself from the sin who gets the blame. 
So is Paul excusing himself? No, he's not. Sorry. Some of you are really excited. <laughs> yes, I'm free. No accountability. Nothing to deal with. No, Paul is abundantly clear that his struggles are directly related to this roommate, to sin that's within him. But his conclusion to all of this is in verse 24. His conclusion to all of this is verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul doesn't say wretched person that sin is. Paul says, wretched man that I am. And so Paul is clear that the problem is sin. The problem is the roommate who won't leave. But the responsibility is ours. And it's because we have obeyed sin. We have given into it. We have entertained it. We have welcomed it and not gotten rid of it as soon as we could. We have decided to obey it. We have put ourselves back into bondage to it. And so in different ways, sin has taken control over us. And so Paul is saying, Yeah, it's sin, it's sin, it's sin, it's sin. But we're responsible. We're responsible for what we do in relationship to sin. And so just driving the point home, sin is not just out there in the culture causing things to spiral and frustrate us all because how evil, all the evil out there in the world. It's not just out there. It's also in here. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, um, his one book, The Gulag Archipelago, was responsible for the downfall of the Soviet Empire. His book brought down like a military and political power that killed tens of millions of people. He was in one of the death camps and he was there and he was suffering. And it was what he experienced in the death camps that caused him to write the book that brought the Soviet empire down. And it was in the death camps that he realized, that he realized that the line between good and evil, as he famously wrote, that line between good and evil doesn't run between political parties. It doesn't run through borders or racial lines. He said that the line between good and evil runs right through the human heart. Solzhenitsyn knew about himself what Paul said about himself in Romans 7, that we all have things that have contributed. We've all contributed in different ways to the brokenness of the world. He realized, even as a victim in a concentration death camp, that he had done things to contribute to the Soviet Union's power. And he owned it. He took responsibility for it. He recognized that though there was sin out there, there was sin in here. And it started there and it grew and it grew and it became a book that destroyed the empire. And so we too have good and evil inside of us. 
And I think what God is doing here in Romans 7, I don't want to say this tritely, but I think that what God is doing here in Romans 7 is he's making a deal with us. I think he's offering us a deal. I think he's saying that you can blame your struggle, you can blame your brokenness, you can blame the things that you do on the sin that dwells in you as long as you own and take responsibility for all of the decisions that you make in following sin. I think that's what this passage is telling us. I think that's what this passage is telling us is how to think about our struggle. You can blame it on this evil reality that's in you as long as you take responsibility for everything that you do. And so, as always, this is like a third way, right? This isn't an excuse that you can blame so that anything that you do is no longer your responsibility. Um, But it's also not you. And if you're a Christian, it's not you anymore. Right? This isn't the sum total of who you are. There's something else that's going on in your life. But so you can blame sin as long as you take responsibility for all the ways that you act out your sin. Now, the implications of this, I think this is helpful because I think this helps us to be real. Because you have something inside of you that every other person has inside of them. And so it helps you to be real. I think it creates space for brokenness. Because if the guy who wrote half the New Testament describes this about himself and says that this is probably true about all of us, then you know what? It's okay if we're not perfect. Um, maybe we should be less shocked about the sins that come from other people. Because you know what? The same thing's inside of us. And maybe we wouldn't manifest that sin in, in the ways that we see other people doing it. <clears throat> but maybe if we spent more time looking at what we've done and the ways that we're broken, we wouldn't be so shocked. So I think this creates space for brokenness. I think it unifies us with everyone who's able to admit this. And even it, able, it, it lets us unify with people that aren't willing to admit this. And it can set us free because you know what? Like you don't have to be better than you are. You can be exactly who you are. And there's room for you because if you're broken, you're not alone. If you're sin-filled, you're not alone. And so what's the solution here? Well, verse 25 tells us the solution is Jesus. Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the answer to this struggle. Well, why? It's because Jesus died for your sin. Jesus forgives your sin, and now Jesus is another presence, another person who is inside your heart. Now it's not just you and sin, but now it's you and sin And Jesus himself, the resurrected and perfect Savior, is also living in you. And this isn't just theological truth. Like, I'm not just telling you stuff that's true because there's Bible verses that say it. I mean, there are, but it's not just truth. I mean, we're talking about a real relationship with Jesus. 
And what I mean by this, and this is how I want to close, is that I want you to know that Jesus knows your sin. And Jesus moved heaven and earth to make sure that you aren't lost. Jesus knows what you're going to do before you do it, and he still loves you. Let me share with you Luke 22, verses 31 to 34. It says this, and Jesus is talking to Simon Peter, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Friends, do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's happening? Peter, Jesus knows that Peter is going to fail. Jesus knows what's going to happen to Peter. He knows that Peter is going to fail and fail miserably. He knows he's going to fail. He knows that the sin in him is going to take over. He knows he's not going to be able to stand up under the sin. He knows he's not going to be able to do it. He's going to fall under the pressure and he's going to fail. And so Jesus goes to Peter before he fails. And he says, Peter, I want you to know what's going to happen. I want you to know that Satan actually wants to destroy you completely. But you know what? I prayed for you. I prayed for you so that even when you fail, your faith will not fail. Jesus says, Peter, I want you to know that what you're about to go through is going to destroy you, but it's not going to destroy your faith. And I want you to know right now, before you do it, that I love you so much that I want you to come back. And so I'm praying for you, Peter. Friends, if Romans 7 is true about you, if Romans 7 is your daily, your weekly experience, if this kind of struggle is characteristic of your life, Jesus knows it and Jesus is praying for you because he loves you. Jesus loves failures. He loves failures. He does. And he'll tell them before they fail, I love you and I'm praying for you. And when you return, when you return, I want you back. That your failures do not exclude you from my love. That my love covers your failure. And look again what Jesus says. He says in in the end of verse 32, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus is saying that he wants his church, he wants his movement to be filled with leaders who know failure. And they know grace. Jesus says what the world needs aren't people that have everything going well for them in life. What the world needs, what our church needs, are people who are honest about their failures. They're real about their failures. And yet the grace of God is even more real to them. 
That's what our church needs. We need men and women who know their failures and know God's grace. This is what San Diego needs, friends. San Diego, your workplaces, your homes, your neighborhoods need men and women who are real about their failures because God's grace is greater. And so if you have failed, Jesus says, I prayed for you before you failed. Come back and let my grace help you strengthen everyone else that you know. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, man, this is why we love Jesus so much. It's because Jesus knows that we're going to fail. He knows that we have failed. And his death covers not only the past, but it covers the future. It covers the way we fail in the future. And it never, ever casts us out. So Jesus invites you in to a relationship with him. Will you receive his love and grace today? Will you let it fill your heart? Will you let it free you to be this real with God and yourself? And we'll talk in the weeks to come about what this looks like in community. Let's pray together. Father, your word astonishes me that you would love us like this, that you would care for us in every other part of our lives and in the world. Failure is greeted with condemnation and judgment, and yet you love us like this. You create space like this. You, Peter and Paul, the top two, Jesus, And here you are sharing their hearts with us so that we would know that we haven't out-sinned your grace, that there is always forgiveness. Draw us near for every person here, Christians and non. Jesus, help us come face-to-face with you and this ever-gracious and ever-loving presence. And let this love overwhelm overwhelm our relationship with our sin and create breaks. Break the chains, God, in our hearts and our souls. Let us flee from sin. We pray this in your name. Amen.